0: Uh, If you're still talking, um, time to turn the voice off and uh, grab a seat. Uh, As Sarah said, we're in the book of Nehemiah. This is a a fantastic series we're doing through this book and looking at leadership. Nehemiah, uh, just to get context, uh, he was around about 400 years before Jesus turned up on the scene. So it's, historically, it's probably the last book in the Old Testament. It's hidden in the middle of the Old Testament, but it's, it's near the end. And the, what had happened was Nehemiah was actually living in Persia, which is sort of up and over from Israel uh, in the sort of you know, Iraq kind of area now. And while he was there, he was cupbearer to the king of Persia. He asked a question of some people who had been living back in Jerusalem Jerusalem, about 150 years earlier, had been decimated by the Babylonians. Uh, they had, it had been conquered. Uh, the temple had been destroyed. The walls had been ripped down. It was an absolute shambles. And they had been exiled into what was then Babylon. Babylon was then conquered by the Persians, as, as happens in world you know, politics. And, uh, and Nehemiah had a heart for his people, and he had a vision. And the story of Nehemiah is about him going from Persia back to Jerusalem, bringing together a nation of people around one common goal, which was to rebuild the walls of the city. And that city needed walls because back in that day, a city without walls was a city without defense. It was a city that was open to attack. Uh, You would live in a constant state of stress and watchfulness if you lived in a city without walls. And so Nehemiah gives us some incredible leadership lessons. And when you think of leadership, uh, fundamentally what leadership is, is it's starting in current reality, working out what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly, looking for a future reality, and then moving the people or the organization or the nation to that future reality. Leadership is about moving from here to there. But leadership is not just simply something somebody else does. Every single one of us has a leadership responsibility, and the first place where that starts is we lead ourselves. Because when you think about it for a minute, every single one of us has had one of those moments where we go, not happy with how I am now. It could be to do with our levels of fitness. It could be to do with our financial position. It could be to do with our, the way we're going in our career. It could be to do with our marriage or with our friendships. Every one of us has had a moment where we go, not happy, need to change, Mo- need to move from here to there. That is leadership. There are some incredible lessons in Nehemiah for how to lead yourself. But then we also find ourselves leading uh, others. We might be leading our family, we might be leading our work colleagues, we might be leading if we're a teacher in a classroom, we might be leading an organization, we might be leading um, a nation. There's all sorts of levels of leadership that we have. And so we've been learning these lessons as we go through Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, just a quick summary on the past two weeks, and if you didn't listen to it, I encourage you, go on the podcast or um, get onto the website and have a listen to them. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, we learned these six things, that leaders ask questions, leaders get the facts, leaders let the facts move them, leaders prepare their heart, they get themselves sorted, they're confident in God, and they make radical requests. Then we had this superb lesson last week in, in leading others to turn vision into reality, where Sarah took us through leaders lead up, leaders act, leaders examine the walls. They get to know the reality of what 's going on. Remember that, that if you were here, there was that beautiful picture of when Nehemiah examined the wall it 's like he poked holes in a wound. Right. Great, uh, yeah I know Joe, exactly, now, ugh, how revolting, but it, like it 's painful, but it exposes the hurts. Leaders inspire others to act. And then leaders keep going. And that's what we got to. And so now we're, we're going to leapfrog chapter 3 of Nehemiah. We're going to re- reference it halfway through. But we're actually going to land in Nehemiah chapter 4, where the project is underway, the wall is being rebuilt. Nehemiah has, has rallied the troops around this. He's got people assigned right around the, the city of Jerusalem, and there's, there's this hub of activity going on in every part of the wall. And as it's being rebuilt, something happens, and you may remember last week uh, the Jaws motif. right? remember it? Right, you know, there was a guy called Sanballat who uh, heard a rumor that they were going to start rebuilding the wall and he was not happy. Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. Right, you remember? Well, of course, he appears in chapter 4 because as the wall is being rebuilt, not everyone's happy. And the thing we learn today is that leadership will always encounter resistance. Because leadership is about bringing change so that a better reality is achieved now that resistance can come in many forms but fundamentally I think there are two types the first sort of resistance you get is when people don't want to change and the reason for that is because where I am right here is comfortable and I'm not going to change because I don't see the need to change because right here and now this is a good place to be there is the resistance which is inspired by comfort the way to answer that is to make the comfortable uncomfortable. And that's what Nehemiah did in the first couple of chapters. He said, you might think this is nice. You might think it's nice having uh, your indoor-outdoor flow from the city. But in fact, it's not indoor-outdoor flow, it is a military disaster because the enemy can also take advantage of the indoor-outdoor flow. So there is no such thing as comfort in the Nehemiah's situation. The second sort of challenge that people face is when, when the people or other people are opposed to the vision becoming reality. They look at the future and they say, I don't like it, I don't want it. And so that results in some form of attack and the challenge is conflict. And this is the leadership lesson of chapter 4. How to lead in the face of conflict and how to lead in the face of attack. Now, as we start to read, I want you to bring into your mind a leadership situation you are... Facing at the moment, because it doesn't matter whether it's something you're leading, where you're leading yourself, or you're leading a team, or you're leading an organization, it doesn't really matter what the situation is, the lessons apply, so I'm just going to read through, my lens is going to be Nehemiah in the wall. As you're listening to it, bring to mind some challenge that you've got or some leadership thing which you're going through and use that as a filter to, th- to listen to what I'm saying and hopefully then that will apply and you'll get some great things to take out of this and go out and change the world in about 30 minutes. How's that sound? Okay, let's read. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. It's on the screens uh, if you haven't got any other way of reading it. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring, back the, sto- bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building— Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Sanballat and his associates, the last thing they wanted was this wall in Jerusalem rebuilt. Their goal was to keep Jerusalem weak and dependent. This group, Sanballat and Tobiah, they represented the political leadership and aspirations of the neighboring cities. It would be a little bit like, if you, if you want sort of a geographic example, it would be like the mayor of Wellington saying, I'm going to get Wellington sorted out economically, and the mayor of Palmerston North saying, oh, no, you're not, because if you get strong, it's going to steal e- econ- economic benefit away from us. Right? That's effectively what's going on here. Because Jerusalem, you see, was, was the plum position for all of the trade routes, and it was, it was if that was rebuilt and got strong again. It's going to take trade away from Samaria, from these other places. It really is the key point. So Sam Ballat, for an economic reason, is saying, I've got to make sure that wall does not get rebuilt. I'm going to lose influence. I'm going to lose wealth. The problem that they had is the enemy and the opposition the Nehemiah is that Nehemiah had all the legal authority and protection of the king of Persia to rebuild the wall. And so Sanballat, in reality, had absolutely no authority to stop the work. Nehemiah had the letters, no, I'm I'm doing this on authority of the king. I've got everything I need, I've got all of the resources that have been given to me, it's all there. So Sanballat had no actual legal rightful grounds where he could stop this work. All he could do was intimidate and discourage the builders into stopping the rebuild. And here's the first phase of the attack. He ridiculed. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates and the Sumerian army. It was a show of strength and it was a show of intimidation. He laughed them to scorn. I was um, catching up on the black caps this morning. I'd Prepared this at the time, thought so I wonder if they actually won last night. They did. I think this is good, right? There is a smile on the face of those of us who love cricket. So I'll go on with a quick sort of 15-minute YouTube highlights of it, and I, I thought cool. I'll watch it. So I, I got halfway through it, and then. Um, I still better get back to this. Um, But uh, so, as I was watching it, um, it had one of those little ads you know how sometimes ads pop up on it. And it was, and I had to say all that to explain to you why I happened to be watching this ad because I would, over my dead body, would I watch this ad? It was about um, Married at First Sight Australia. Right? And, uh, but it struck me because the way that Married First Sight Australia advertised was this woman walked into her office with about three or four other colleagues and she said, I'm getting married. And they all laughed at her. And then the camera caught that sense of embarrassment and shame when everybody around her laughed at her. That's what Sanballat and Tobiah are doing to the Jews, that same feeling. I wonder if you've experienced it. I wonder what ridicule looks like for you. There's a number of very pointed questions that they ask the Jews here. they are on the screen. Who do you think you are to build the wall? Let me question your authority. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how. You have no idea how to build the wall. Let me question your planning. You don't know what you're doing. You might have a plan, but you have no idea how to do it. Let me question your Competency. You don't have what it takes. Let me question your resources. Let me question the things that you've got. And you know what? Even if you manage to build it, it's not going to last. I'm going to question the quality of what you've got. I wonder if some of those ring true. I wonder if you hear those sort of accusations. You see, the goal of ridicule is to put you in your place. It's to stop the step, it's to stop the work, it's to stop the vision. If the enemy can make you ashamed, if the enemy can can make you feel like you are the lonely person in the center of the room being laughed at, they win. So what did Nehemiah do? Well, verse 4, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. What's interesting is that Nehemiah didn't actually answer the ridicule. Did you notice that? He didn't try and defend it. And In this part of the story, Nehemiah never actually responds to the attackers. The reason is, is because that would take his energy and focus away from the real job, which was leading people in the vision. But he did pray. And here's what he prayed. He said, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Then note the other things. He said, we are despised. Okay, God, would you turn their insults back onto their heads? Would you give them a taste of being exiled like we have been exiled? God, would you make sure they don't get away with it? I've got to tell you, that doesn't sound like a particularly Christian response, does it? You know, the turn the other cheek gig, the you know, forgive 70 times 7, the, you know, it's, it's almost like God have insulted us, get them. Hmm. There's a really important healthy leadership lesson. You have to have a safety valve for your emotional and spiritual health and leadership. It's a place where the pressure that builds up inside your soul as you are being ridiculed can be released. A place that allows emotions and reactions to be aired and set free. Nehemiah knew such a place. It was the place of prayer, and I've got to tell you, it is the most profound place for this action to take place. In fact, I don't know of any other safe one, which is why I actually don't know how you do leadership without a relationship with God. I want you to note carefully how it works. He tells the Lord exactly what he's thinking, and then he leaves it with the Lord, and he gets back to what he's called to do. He tells the Lord, here's my challenge. Here's my thinking. I've given it to you. I'm going to leave it with you. What you decide to do, God, that's your business. What you've called me to do is to focus on building the wall, not fight the ridicule. So profound. I wonder how many of us, when we get ridiculed, when we're under attack, we waste time and energy fighting what we never needed to fight. Here's the point. When you're under attack, either from your own thinking or from the discouragement of others, process it. In a prayerful attitude, put it on the table, examine it in the light of the facts, and then keep building You see, Nehemiah can resist these attacks because he knows what is true. His preparation is complete. His confidence and his authority is full. And his commitment to the vision is unwavering. The attacks are dealt with not to distract him and derail him. He remains crystal clear in what he is called to do. One commentator put it this way. He said, the things people say may hurt us, but they can never harm us unless we let them get into our system and poison us. If we spend time pondering our enemy's words, we will give Satan a foothold from which he can launch another attack. You know, words sown into your life become footholds that the enemy can use to destroy further work through you. I wonder how many of us are limited because of words that have been sown into our souls over the years. Or on the flip side, you become so sensitive and driven to compensate for a word that's been sown into you, a ridicule. The legend was that my father was educated by a French teacher whose nickname was Skip. Skip was a fantastic French teacher, He would stand behind my father, and whenever Dad wrote a wrong word, he would wiggle Dad's ears vigorously to get his attention to make sure that he was doing it right. He would then stand in front of my father, and whenever Dad made another mistake, which Dad was wont to do when it came to French, he would stamp on my father's foot to get his attention. Needless to say, my father's experience of and love for the French language was negligible. When I got to the fourth form, I had an old French teacher, and I met him, and his name was, you guessed it, Skip. And I sat in Skip's class, and when I went home and told Dad that I had Skip, Dad told me again all of his stories about how he experienced French. So I was a little nervous because um, I wasn't that flash at French either. I'd got through Form 3 with marks well north of 50 and somewhere above 10. And and Skip, I discovered, would stand behind me. And he'd be talking in French and getting us to make responses. And if I didn't quite say it right, I found him grabbing my ear (laughs) and giving it a good yank. And I discovered, too, that he had a really good aim with his heel onto my toes if I wrote something wrong. Well, I, uh, this was unbearable to me, and so after about four or five weeks of fourth-form French, I discovered the joys of the corridor during my French lessons. And I spent the rest of the year in the desk outside of the classroom doing I cannot remember what. But what I have ringing in my ears and in my mind and in my soul was field, you can't learn languages. That's what he told me. Last year, as a staff, we decided to learn te and as we were doing that, we were going through this, we had a whole bunch of things going on, and it came to this one moment where our, our Māori teacher over in the life group, there's a whole bunch of us on staff, and as we were there, uh, we went around the room, and she said to me, Nick, can you give a greeting in Māori? And all of a sudden, I was a 14-year-old kid sitting outside of the classroom with the word ringing in my ear, "Field, you can't learn language. I shared this with the staff after I did it because I took a really deep breath and I stood up and I did my greeting and they probably looked at me and said, oh yeah, that was, that was alright I said, you have no idea what's just happened I've killed a mountain you don't kill mountains what do you do? you scale a mountain you kill a monster, that's right yeah, there we go you know when something comes out of your mouth, you go, hang on, that just wasn't quite right. <laughs> I wonder what's sown into your soul. I wonder what ridicule there is that the enemy of your soul wants to make sure you never go there. I wonder if there's something in terms of your spiritual life. I wonder, because he realised that there will always be a sustained attack against your spiritual growth because the enemy of your soul wants to do everything he can to keep you away from a relationship with Jesus Christ and it doesn't stop even when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and i wonder if there is a fear of, of ridicule, if there's a fear of ridicule to say well if i step out what will others think i wonder if there's something sown into your soul from years gone by where that just feels an impossible place to be. You know, in Isaiah chapter sixty, verse nineteen, a beautiful little verse. We're told that salvation will surround you like city walls. And the the point that that prophet is saying is this: He said, salvation, relationship with God, is like a city with walls. That when you have that, there is security. It's what you're created for. There is a delight in salvation. There's identity. There's meaning. There's purpose. Now there are plenty of enemies of God who will give you ridicule as you take steps to build that relationship. Here's the lesson from Nehemiah. Ignore it and keep going. Phase one, ridicule. Phase two. Here we go, verse six. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. Verse seven. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, you hear how the number of enemies is increasing, by the way. When they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Here's the here's the thing which is happening the repairs had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed by the way Nehemiah's planning and execution was sublime because he actually did the whole thing in under 60 days. Right? You know, there's a few projects around here, which we'd quite like to be done in under 60 days, isn't there? Um, Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod. What you need to hear in that is if there's Jerusalem, all four sides now are against them. Right? It's not like they can say, oh man, we've got some friends somewhere. It's like it didn't matter which way they turned, there was an enemy facing at them, and they were all very angry, and they plotted together. They plotted together to do a couple of things. Firstly, they plotted to fight. There was the threat of attack. So the the Israelites now were working away, they're building the wall, and they're hearing that all of their enemies, whichever way they turn, they're going to attack them. How would you think you'd feel? I suggest fear would become a reality. And they were also going to stir up trouble. And the idea behind that was this. They were going to infiltrate to bring confusion, misinformation, disunity, distrust in the vision or in the leadership. And so we have the second challenge. How do you lead through, firstly, ridicule? And secondly, how do you lead through fear and confusion? Because they, just like ridicule, drag your attention away from the vision. You run the risk of losing the sight of the real battle, which is to build the wall. You find yourself thinking, you know what? This would have been easier if we had never, ever started. And what did Nehemiah do? Well, he prayed again. But he did more than pray this time. This time it demands some action. Ridicule, you can pray and leave. Now it comes to fear and confusion, you need to pray and act. Verse 9, we prayed to our God and posted the guard day and night To meet this threat. What are the guards doing? And again in the in the scene, you can imagine this, you've got builders building a wall all around the city. But now there are some people who are taken away from building the wall so it's requiring resource. And those people are there to stand guard, they're there to watch. What is it that they're watching for? I want to suggest a couple of things. Firstly, they're watching to warn of attack. If these four nations around them are going to attack them, the guard is there to, to warn, give them a warning, say, right, down tools, pick up weapons, we're about to be attacked. The second thing that they're watching out for is infiltration. You can imagine the person in the dead of night quietly slipping into a building team and sowing confusion, maybe challenging the plans, maybe questioning the vision. Perhaps convincing the team there's a better way or that the whole idea is flawed, that, you know, fill in the gaps in your situation. You know, to know what is true, to have the facts, to know who, what, and where the enemy is in the organization, in your life. You can ignore the ridicule, but fear must be met with truth. And confusion needs to be met with facts or else the vision will be compromised. You can see it here. Nehemiah is taking this attack very seriously. It's requiring resources to meet the threat. But it gets even more complicated because in the middle of this threat, while the external attack is going on, there is another dynamic which comes into play. And this is usually... At a critical moment in any project or in any change process or in any fitness regime, it's the the challenge of the halfway mark. And in verse 10 to 12, we read about it. The people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Can you hear the agony of that? Right, they've been working hard for probably 30 days. They have gone day and night. They've, they've stood up against the, the ridicule. They're now working in the fact that they're fearful for their lives and they're wondering, there's these rumors going around that maybe Nehemiah wasn't the person that he said he was and maybe there's things going on which we don't understand. And as all of that's going on, they're then looking at the fact that they've got a wall which is half built but there seems to be more rubble than there is wall and they're starting to think, how on earth do we solve this? And our strength starts to give out. Also, verse 11, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. You can imagine them going to Nehemiah and saying, hey, we have worked ourselves to the bone. We have half a wall to show for it. And there's so much rubble, we don't know what to do with it. We're tired and we're under attack. We can't work out there while our enemies are there. We fear for our lives. And every time we talk to our fellow Jews, they tell us that the enemy is everywhere. You know, if someone gives you bad news and you hear it once, that's okay. You know, if you hear it twice, that's you know, average. You hear it three times; that's getting a little bit tiresome. You hear it five times; it's like I know this already. You hear it ten times; it's like, will you stop it? I just can't. I'm, I'm done. I get it. I know. And the idea in here is when it says uh, they told us you know um, ten times over, it means that never stopped. Have you ever had someone? Say to you in your best interest. Look, you know that business plan; it just doesn't. It's not going to work. You know, you're you're going for that sales sales job, and, and it's also. But you realize that there's all these other people going for it. You're never going to get it. I just just need you to know that. I just you know don't want you to under you know underestimate the challenge. And every time you hear it, it's like a <coughs> and it drives you down. Discouragement. Discouragement. You lead through ridicule. You lead through fear and confusion. And they need to lead through discouragement. Therefore, verse 13, here's how Nehemiah did it. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall of the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is an incredibly important leadership moment. The ridicule, the fear and confusion get the facts. The discouragement, something had to change. And back in chapter 3, I told you we would sort of nodded it. Chapter 3, the lesson of chapter 3 is all about um, providing ownership to vision. Because what you see in chapter 3 is every family group rebuilt a section of the wall near their home. It was a brilliant leadership moment of ensuring ownership and buy-in and division. And you, you will know as well as I do that if, if you don't own the vision, you don't do the vision. And I, I am living evidence of the fact that I do not own the vision for fitness. Right? So I know that. And uh, yeah, I have a bike sitting in my garage. It's been sitting there for four years. Right? The spiders are getting more joy out of my bike than I am. Right? I'm, I'm living proof of that. But you also know, those of you who are leading teams, you know the person who doesn't own the vision usually slows the whole thing down. And Nehemiah said, I'm going to get some skin in the game. You're going to build the wall around your house. Why is that brilliant? Because they knew that if if the wall was up outside their house, they had better protection. They owned it. They had skin in the game. Every single person felt safer in their own home with a wall, but there were still sections where the wall was low, and in the middle of this attack, in this time of discouragement, the risk was was that the people would devolve into an every person for themselves mentality, it was high risk, discouragement means, you know what, Nehemiah, that's nice, but forget it, my bit's done, I'm happy, I'm going to lock my doors, it'll all be good, I'll forget about it, high risk for the vision. So Nehemiah needed to shift the resources. I imagine that the way he did this is he looked at the parts of the wall that were the strongest. He looked at the parts of the wall that were the highest, and then he did a biblical corporate restructure. Because he said, I'm going to take you from that place where it is strong and healthy, and I'm going to move you to this part where it is not so strong and it is weak. I'm going to restructure the way that we're doing this thing. We're going to leave that bit for the moment, and we're going to build this bit up so we get the whole wall sorted. He redeployed those families to the weakest parts, and then he refocuses the people. And he said in verse 14, he said, remember the Lord. Look back so you can look forward. You're discouraged. Let's make sure we've done everything we can do, and then I want you to look at the Lord. Remember, how big is he? Do you realize he's the creator of heaven and earth? He's proven over generations to be faithful. When you look back, He's never failed us or forsaken us. He is trustworthy, he is faithful, and he is true, and he is the one who is leading us to rebuild the wall. How big is the enemy, asked Nehemiah? Well, currently it's a few people operating outside of the king of Persia's authority, so in confusion, doubt, and fear, and they're no match for the power of a king. Therefore, do not be afraid. Keep building. I wonder if those people here and you're struggling with faith. And there's one question you can't answer about God, even though there is a lifetime of his faithfulness and love towards you. And you know, this, this one enemy question, this one discouragement, this one doubt that's keeping you from fully surrendering to him. It's interesting. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, We all returned to the wall, each to our own work. I love the fact that at that point the enemy knew that they were done. Exposure is often the best answer to an enemy attack. Get things on the table, look at the facts, get back to the work. From that day on, verse 16 through to the end of the chapter, from that day on half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armors the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So he continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, Have every man and his helpers stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor my guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. This is frantic work. This is just less than 60 days of 24-7. We are going to make this happen. And I want you to note one really important thing in there. They knew the risks. They knew the challenge. They knew the ridicule. They knew the fear. They knew the confusion. They knew the discouragement. And so they set up a warning signal, which was a trumpet. If you're in trouble, blow the trumpet. We'll come. Message. You can't do leadership alone. You can't do it. In your workplace. You know, how, do you, how do you blow the trumpet? You know, who's, who's your coach? Who's your manager? Who's your boss? Who, who's your mentor? Who's the person who when when you're facing these challenges that you need to lead through? How do you blow the trumpet? You, you, you walk into their office, you, you pick up the phone, you text, whatever it is that you do, you say, I need some help. I can't do this alone. You blow the trumpet. In our private world, when you're going through things, even when you're leading yourself or you're in a situation where all of this is circling around you and you say, oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just me. I can do this by myself. No, blow the trumpet. How do you do that? Well, you, you talk to your spouse friends or your family, you find that safe, trusted place where you say, you know what, I'm doing it tough at the moment. And open up. And you're Jesus following. How do you blow the trumpet? you yeah, Maybe it's your life group or it's your, your church community. It's it's people that you know, people that you trust. You know when when there is trouble, blow the trumpet. When there is ridicule, when you discover there are words sown into your life that limit you, that, that you fight you. Maybe you don't even know they're there, but you just have these reactions where you go, wow, where did that come from? Blow the trumpet. Maybe there's fear and confusion, you you sense a plot to stop you doing what you're doing. Well, get the facts, blow the trumpet, get others to help you. Don't do this alone. Maybe there's discouragement where it all seems too big, and you're asking that question why on earth did we start this? Blow the trumpet, get the facts, reject the fiction, remember the vision, remember the Lord. How to lead? How to lead through ridicule, how to lead through fear and confusion, how to lead through discouragement. Remember the Lord, remember those around you, get the facts, ignore what you can ignore and learn how to play the trumpet. Would you stand with me? Next week, we're looking at chapter five. It's leadership and social justice. And how do you, how do you create an, an economy in a, in a sort of a, a resurrected society? It's an exciting chapter to look at. But let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word today. I pray, Father, for every one of us who is facing leadership challenge, that, Lord, what we have been able to discuss together might be an encouragement, an equipping, uh, something to help us uh, do life better. But, Father, I also pray, too, for our walk with you, and, and you know my conviction that I, I don't know how you'd do leadership without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray you deepen every one of our, our walk with him, our relationship with him. Father, we ask these things as we go, and Lord, would you watch over us and bless us uh, for this week uh, until we meet again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful to be with you. If you want to talk, uh, our prayer team is here. They they would love to pray with you uh, right now. They'll be at the front. Um, Sarah and I are here. We'd love to greet you. Have a fantastic week. See you next week.